Citizen Podcast. Here's your host, Sheila Dean. Hey, it's Saturday on New Year's Eve of 2022. How you doing? Let me just invite all the people. How you doing? How you doing? So, yes, New Year's Eve 2022, and this is our Flightmare show. All week, everybody has been complaining about the impossibility of getting out of the airport because of Southwest. But Southwest isn't the only one who had problems. Um, I want to return to the main idea, but first I want to encapsulate some of the problem area that I think that that um, the Convivial Society does a fantastic job of helping us get a bird's eye view, like a 30,000 foot, kind of like, how are we really doing as a society? How, how are we doing? How are you doing? And turns out, like, the more technology that we've been integrating with ourselves in our lives, it's, it's really become kind of an, not a disruptive force, because people and business love disruption, you know, and it has its place. But interruption brings you to a totally different conclusion, a totally different lifestyle and a life sensation than you would if you were doing things maybe culturally five years, ten years ago, things that make sense, things that you do normally, and how how our culture has kind of become this... There's a ton of white noise out there. So um, I'm going to pause the, the mic for just a moment, and then I, I have this uh, What You Get is the World uh, is the name of the essay. It's about 15 minutes, but it's totally worth listening to as a year-end summation on um, the principles that are governing technology in your life, how that really is kind of shaking you down. So... Um, let me look down here to see who's with us. We have our favorites, William and Gregor. Please uh, do your invites and, and call people to the program so that we can listen to you and also listen to Mr. Sakasas and this excellent essay. So I'm going to go on mute right now and then. Goods have been unjustly distributed 
both in the sense that Western society has benefited from depredations that have been visited upon the non-Western world, and that within Western society, too many have been unjustly excluded from sharing in the fruits of material prosperity. But I want to go a bit further than these well-documented realities. It is also the case that the material prosperity so many of us enjoy comes at a cost to our well-being, such that many are beginning to question whether we've not unwittingly assented to a devil's bargain. Here I am thinking, for example, of the equally well-documented rise in rates of burnout, mental health disorder, and loneliness. More speculatively, I'd even suggest that we've somehow stumbled into a crisis of desire. Our techno-economic order takes the shape of a great engine of desire, training us to want what it offers and encouraging us to forget our deep desire for that which cannot be bought. I may come back to that latter point about desire in the new year, but for now, let me try to hone in on a relatively modest claim. When I think about the forces shaping modern society, I tend to characterize them as centrifugal rather than centripetal forces, which is to say that these forces tend to pull us apart rather than bring us together. When I consider the forces operating on the person, however, a different frame comes to mind. These I think of as forces which deplete rather than renew us. As I used to observe with some frequency, the arc of digital culture bends toward exhaustion. What I mean by this is simple. When we think of the way our days are structured, the kinds of activities most readily on offer, the mode of relating to the world we are encouraged to adopt, etc., in each case we are more likely to find ourselves spent rather than sustained. The default set of experiences on offer to us are more likely to leave us feeling drained and depleted rather than satisfied and renewed. In our consumption, we are consumed. There are many ways to think about this. We are depleted by the pace and structure of contemporary life, particularly by how spatial and temporal boundaries that provide modest respites from the demands others could place on us have been eroded by the capacities of digital technology. Now we are always on and always available, our freneticism masquerading as flexibility. We are also depleted by our media ecosystem, which, if we let it, will overwhelm us with cognitive and emotional stimuli. We are depleted, too, by a techno-economic system that is bent on treating the human and the non-human alike as raw material, as sites of extraction. All of this can be summed up briefly by observing that the human-built world is not built for humans. As the 20th century French thinker Jacques Ellul noted, the operating principle of modern society is technique, a relentless drive to optimize all things for efficiency. At no point is any care taken for the human as such. Even our games, diversions, and therapies can be best understood as what Ellul called human techniques, the bare minimum therapies necessary to keep the human component of the machine operational. This picture is admittedly bleak, but what ultimately concerns me here is to think about what experiences might actually offer something like rest, renewal, or a modest measure of satisfaction. What practices can thrive outside the bounds of economic rationality, optimization, and consumption? Is there a way to recalibrate the rhythms of our days and weeks and months and years so that they generate meaning and a measure of internal and communal harmony? I suspect there are many good answers to those questions, and in the coming year I want to spend more time thinking and writing about what those might be. 
But just now, I'm thinking about depletion and renewal, mostly in light of my discussion of depth in the last installment discussing artificially generated images. If you've not read it, no worries. The line that sums up the key idea comes from a longtime tutor at St. John's College, who once observed that serious texts have a surface that arouses a desire to know them and the depth to satisfy that desire. In place of occasional experiences of depth that renew and satisfy us, I observe, we are simply given an infinite surface upon which to skim indefinitely. I had in view the sea of artificially generated images and text threatening to flood our feeds, but we can generalize the principle to describe much of our experience. I initially intended to develop this line of thought a bit further in that last installment, but as so often happens, the piece went off in another direction, and I thought better of trying to squeeze this bit in. But I do find myself wanting to make the case more explicitly for the idea that there are depths worth discovering by the application of our patient, careful attention, and that these depths can be rewarding and renewing. Of course, I doubt that many of you listening will need me to make this case for you. In fact, I'm sure many of you can make it better and more eloquently than I can. But I find it useful to return again and again to key ideas and principles I, at least, can always use the reminder. So one way to approach the matter is to simply ask ourselves, what do we get for our troubles if we should learn to attend to the world with care? What we get, simply put, is nothing short of the world itself. Let me elaborate on the claim first with an anecdote from my years in the classroom. When I taught five or six periods a day, it would usually take me two or three weeks to learn the names of most of my students at the beginning of the year. Invariably, there would be a handful of students who I would go on to have some trouble telling apart. Maybe they were all of a certain height or hair color or whatever. Long after I could confidently call on most students by name, these few students would remain indistinguishable to me. But naturally, a few weeks later on, their uniqueness would gradually become more fully apparent to me. And by the end of the semester, I always marveled at the fact that I had ever had any difficulty telling them apart. So what happened? Neither my vision nor their appearance changed in any meaningful way during this time period. Yet my ability to perceive these students changed dramatically. Attending to them over a sufficient amount of time, persevering in my efforts to know them by name, eventually disclosed the distinctness of their individuality to me. For my purposes here, the striking thing is that a layer of reality that was always present to my senses only became accessible to me over time through the persistent application of attention. Consider, too, this paragraph from Jenny O'Dell's 2019 book, How to Do Nothing. In it, O'Dell is discussing the practice of deep listening, which she illustrates by reference to her experience as an amateur birder. What amazed and humbled me about birdwatching was the way it changed the granularity of my perception, which had been pretty low res. At first, I just noticed birdsong more. Of course, it had been there all along, but now that I was paying attention to it, I realized that it was almost everywhere, all day, all the time. And then, one by one, I started learning each song and associating it with a bird, so that now, when I walk into the rose garden, I inadvertently acknowledge them in my head as though they were people. I raven, robin, song sparrow, chickadee, goldfinch, towhee, hawk, nuthatch, and so on. Odell goes on to describe this process as the diversification of what was previously bird sounds into 
discrete sounds that mean something to me. As Odell puts it, this is a matter of something becoming meaningful to me, which is no small thing. But I find myself wanting to put it more starkly. I would describe this diversification as gaining access to a bit more of the world. Previously, I failed to perceive some part of the world, some aspect of reality. It did not register for me. I was blind to it. It might as well not have existed at all. But now I have received it as a gift for the meager trouble of caring enough to pay attention. It did not just become meaningful to me. It became real to me. As Iris Murdoch put it, reality is that which is revealed to the patient eye of love, or elsewhere, attention is rewarded by a knowledge of reality. The pattern repeats itself endlessly. My friend, who is a retired plant pathologist, has gained, through years of attention and care, a deeper, fuller experience of local fauna than what I have earned, and by that knowledge experiences a richer relationship to the city we share. Just as Odell initially heard only birdsong, I see only trees, or barely better. He sees oaks, maples, distinct varieties of pine, cypress, crepe myrtle, and so on. To the amateur stargazer, the seeming scattershot of lighted pinpricks across the darkling sky form meaningful patterns and bind her to a fount of human culture and imagination. In both cases, the reward of attention is the disclosure of a multifaceted reality. The things themselves, the places they shape, the times they mark. By our attention, we gain the world, and the world becomes a home. But it is not just nature which confronts me with these orders of reality. In my previous post, I wrote about The Harvesters, a painting by Peter Bruegel. As with any great work, it will sustain my careful attention over time, disclosing more and more of itself and its meaning to me. And so too will a worthwhile book, I can revisit it time and again and find that the text has more to offer me, more wisdom, and more pleasure. And this is to say nothing of how I myself change over time and thus become able to perceive more of the depth of the work, or how attention over time discloses not just orders of reality, but also temporal rhythms that allow us to inhabit rather than resist time. The time it takes Orion to traverse the winter sky, or the moon to pass from new to full and back again time it takes a seed to sprout or a plant to flower, or how the meaning of a text or of a field or of the night sky in winter cascades over time as my own history with each becomes a multiplier of meaning and deep familiarity consoles me, shepherds my memory, and fills my heart. In short, how I find myself in each case renewed and not depleted. But there is a catch. Something is demanded of us, and we can have no guarantee at the outset that we will in fact be compensated for our efforts. What is demanded of us initially, even before patience and careful attention, is, I think, humility. Humility is not a peculiar habit of self-effacement, as Iris Murdoch observed. It is selfless respect for reality, and one of the most difficult and central of all virtues. Humility and a refusal of the myth of limitlessness because if there is anything that makes us complicit in propagating the exhausting, depleting, surface-skimming way of life, it is a refusal to acknowledge our good and proper limits as mortal embodied creatures. As Wendell Berry has put it, our human and earthly limits properly understood are not confinements, but rather inducements to formal elaboration and elegance, to fullness of relationship and meaning. 
By this fullness of relationship and meaning, I take Barry to mean something very close to what I have been characterizing as the renewing depths of reality. Perhaps our most serious cultural loss in recent centuries, Barry went on to say, is the knowledge that some things, though limited, are inexhaustible. A small place, as I know from my own experience, he adds, can provide opportunities of work and learning and a fund of beauty, solace, and pleasure, in addition to its difficulties, that cannot be exhausted in a lifetime or in generations. What Barry writes of his small place can, I think, be applied to much else in the world which will also yield such fruits to us if only we will be patient in our attentive labors. And that is just another way of saying that in this way we might finally find a measure of renewal. Okay, so that was Elam Sakasas narrating his Substack blog called The Convivial Society, and he is great. Um, if you haven't subscribed to his Substack, I would go there and subscribe today if you have time, and if you have the bandwidth to enjoy it. So, welcome, welcome, welcome to this edition of Flight Mares Back from the Holidays. So I expect someone to call in and, and talk to us about their flight exchanges. Uh, I want to just donate this one exchange that I'm aware of. So in the picture for the show today, um, can you hear me fine? So, okay. So there's a picture from the show today, and it should be, you know, ripped up boxes and one of the TSA slider bins that comes through the x-ray machine um, someone a personal friend wrote me and told me they tore open my presents in my bag um, because I used something that had glycerin on my hands and uh, this person only wears uh, natural products and a lot of natural products like from you know health grocery stores contain glycerin so his soaps and his lotions and his um and you know aloes those sorts of things all of them had uh glycerin as an ingredient either you know at the top of the list they had glycerin so he was pulled over by the TSA for two reasons he refused the x-ray because obviously he did, he doesn't want to be x-rayed um, and he was also pulled over because of all the glycerin on his body, on his hands and his feet, because it's cold outside. You know, he's, he's slathering himself with, with glycerin lotion. So the TSA picked on him. Okay, when they opened up his bags, they tore open all his presents. I, and so I wanted to make sure that the picture of the torn open presents in the bin was there. And I want to read to you what, what he sent me. This person doesn't want to be on the show. He just wanted to tell me what happened. Um, so I'm going to read the text that he sent me. Total harassment from TSA. They made me wait for a long time to get a pat down. Then they told me that they found an explosive chemical on me, which ended up being the glycerin. Um, they checked my stuff thoroughly and then opened and emptied everything out of my bags. Uh, opened up all the presents and then they sent me to a second pat down in a private room 
Then they found everything was okay, and they let me go on my way. And now I have to repack all my stuff. So I've never had that done before. And, you know, I just want you to see that they opened up all the presents. So that was a nightmare scenario. He has to rewrap all of his gifts, which is totally inconvenient. But they, they treated him kind of like a criminal. And so that's, hey, there there's sick for truth. I'm going to elevate him straight to the speaker column. Sick, if you see the invitation to speak, I want you to just take it. It's not a great big audience today, but it is New Year's Eve, and I want you to know that that Homeland Security has a special place for the sick community. Now, they haven't been real transparent, and this is what I've said since 2017. 2017 was the last year for the for the government transparency movement before there was a needle nose downturn a straight nose dive into a closed out universe with lots of cancellation lots of censorship and lots of surveillance additional surveillance okay so this is from Thursday March 2 of 2017 and i'm going to read you just a few few blocks of text here from from the transparency at TSA statement 2017 that was the last time that they had any kind of transparency and accountability uh, onus that was directed down onto them and I think that that was because Mr. Donald Trump didn't think that it was a big deal he thinks that everybody should be open and exposed uh, which I never agreed to but it, it really did put people in kind of a psychological cage, psychic cage, and um, it, you know, not many people were, were able to really talk about it because the other team also in favor of surveillance. So all the people who were Obama devotees, you know, totally on board with surveillance this is the neoliberal establishment that we, that we all know as World Economic Forum and those who are kind of congealed into that jello blob of head cheese, also known as, as the uh, G20. You know, everybody who just participated and went along with it. Um, so this is the information sharing with transportation security partners. TSA participates actively in a number of collaborative organizations at local, national, and international levels to share information with transportation security partners, develop policy recommendations, and solicit feedback. As codified by the Aviation Security Stakeholder Participation Act of 2014, they got to do this. This is their compliance requirement. TSA has established the Aviation Security Advisory Committee, or ASAC, com comprising representatives of air carriers, airport operators, labor organizations, security technology companies, <laughs> law enforcement, security experts, as well as many other important stakeholders which the sick community is of one, so there was a special invite for Sick for Truth to come to the show. ASAC holds regular meetings and advises TSA on the development, refinement, and implementation of policies, programs, rulemaking, security directives pertaining to aviation security, including through established subcommittees pertaining to specific aviation security issues. From the current two-year term, ending April 2017, ASAC presented 45 recommendations, of which 33 are complete and 12 are in the process of being implemented. Okay, so that's part of the technical security 
uh, report. So further, TSA conducts outreach with civil rights, disability-related, and multicultural interest groups to understand concerns and solicit feedback on TSA's policies and programs. Such groups as the SICK Coalition, National Center for Transgender Equality, the American Diabetes Association, and the Helen Keller School for the Blind participate in TSA's disability and multicultural coalitions and have partnered with TSA to provide training for the workforce. TSA communicates openly with the public and press via public outreach, websites, social media, and media relations. TSA conducts more than 300 media events per year and responds to approximately 10,000 media inquiries, and TSA operates the Ask TSA program to answer customer questions and provide helpful services in real-time 365 days a year via Twitter and Facebook on Messenger platforms. Okay, so Facebook, Twitter, social media, civil rights, disability, transgender, and sick coalition. Okay, so you are a special voice in this coalition, uh, even if you are in the UK, because they did indicate through their sensitive security information that given TSA's need to share information with a wide range of security partners and stakeholders, we take seriously our responsibility to protect that information if publicly released would be detrimental to transportation security. So they do have a role for privacy, but they also have a role for foreign partners, which is indicated here in this document. So if you go up to the box, the unsanctioned citizen box, and uh, push to the left, there's links there. There's a link to uh, Sakasa's essay, and then transparency at the TSA. Okay, Homeland Security Information Network. Okay, that's the next leg of what we're going to talk about. Now, as I've reported on Truth Talk UK and my own Substack, there is the enlistment of the local, national, tribal government and, and for the continuity of government, but they do use an open face. It just shows you right there on the CISA website, the Homeland Security Information Network. So it's this portal that everybody's talked about in the Twitter files, like it's some hidden portal. No, it is sitting out there on the face. Just It's right there. So if you push there, the, the the Homeland Security Information Network, it's just sitting right there. It says, what is HSIN? Find out how it amplifies your, your access to sensitive but unclassified information. How to join. There's an annual report. Critical infrastructure. For private sector critical infrastructure owners and operators, we now know that that is Twitter and Facebook. Emergency services. Boom, right there. They get it all. Intelligence, HSIN Intel connects partners across mission areas and promotes the exchange and analysis of controlled, unclassified intelligence and threat-related information. I don't know how effective it is because there's been lots of mishaps. Law enforcement. And then finally, here you go, the Homeland Security Grant Program. They will pay you for your information, schools airports city hall okay sick so i'd like to ask you about this this generalized probe that has just enlisted itself at say twitter and all these other places and also the airports you there yeah yeah i'm here but, uh, sorry i'm a bit, <laughs> a bit 
clued, have not really clued up on this uh, information. But yeah, I mean, um, the Sikh Coalition website dot org, right? So there's a blog from 2022, September 9th, engaging the TSA to fight anti-Sikh discrimination. Is that what you're talking about, or is it? Yeah, yeah. Like- they they have a special place on the civil rights board, so it's possible yeah. you could launder some of our concerns. <laughs> Yeah, in, it, in mean, terms of privacy and civil liberties and that sort of oh, thing, you you got a wedge in there, bro. Oh yeah, I mean this is all about you know sort of going back to nine eleven when uh, when many people were discriminated against uh, you know uh, just by the way they looked um, yeah. and even during the COVID era you know if you didn't wear a mask or if you don't practice these uh, um, behaviors then you you know you're sort of seen as an outsider but i mean at, at the bottom of the i mean it's a short blog it's um it's in conjunction with the Sikh coalition Sikh organizations and the TSA which is the transport um security agency or you know screening agency uh, for um you know uh, U.S. airports. It does say at the bottom. It says the Sikh coalition urges you to practice your faith fearlessly. Now, you know, so that means that you know we shouldn't be. Uh, you know, we should Timid. have no. Yeah, 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 yeah. We should. Yeah, we shouldn't. We shouldn't be afraid. Um, you know, to if we have. I mean, a lot of Sikhs where they're obviously you can identify Sikhs by their. Um, uh, religious symbols so they might have long hair or they might wear a turban or they may wear a kaban which is a Sikh uh, dagger short dagger at the side um, but it's you know that's that's just a, a military fatigue it's, it's not sharp you know we don't really hurt anyone with that um, it's just it's just a symbol the Sikhs have five symbols actually the the turban is one um, and I mean, there's a, the, the, the color, which is the metal bangle that all Sikh wear on their right hand. So you can identify if they're, you know, Asian or they wear a Sikh bangle and 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 and, and the, the holy dagger, uh, the kaban as well. So yeah, I mean, uh, it says here, you know, um, uh, this is all about discrimination, right? So this is all about, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. not discrimination against, um, you know. Um, and and having and having rights, you know, American Americans have rights, and even if you you know whatever religious practice you preach, you you should all be treated fairly and equally. So I mean, equality is actually one of the Sikhs' uh, fundamentals, um, you know, premises. Uh, you know, equality for all, and especially for women. So you know, Sikh, the Sikh religion elevated women actually at the same <clears throat> status of. Uh, men and you know men and women are equal, kind of thing. So um, yeah, no, I think this is a, a, a good, you know, a good um, message. Um, I mean, you want know, to jump back in on on this or? Yeah, I mean, I'm glad that that we're apprised of of the importance of the C community in the in the at the TSA. Um, it, it means that we have advocates in in those those numbers now it does seem that we would have to rely heavily on on trans and multicultural to be our advocates at the tsa because they're not taking normal pains and aches of the american people at any length anymore and that's because of the weird weird uh nosedive that we've taken into um 
you know, the, the cancel culture and, and all of that. Yep. So um, I think Gregor has something to say, maybe a question or some, some such experience he might want to share. Hi, Gregor. Welcome back to the program. Um, yeah, no, this is one of my pet peeves, um, this whole TSA thing. Um, it just blows my mind that we are still putting up with it 22 years later. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I don't, under, I don't understand how we can't make some movement on this. Um, yeah, I know uh, that especially, for example, Sikhs were very much persecuted in the beginning because nobody could tell the difference between a Sikh and... and somebody of um, Iraqi or, or Arabian descent. Um, Which is really and, a know, State this... Department problem. And, and in addition to, I don't think that the TSA, um, I, I don't want to minimize their role, but I'm going to minimize their role. Um, no one, I, I, I think that they knew that if someone sent in any type of bomb uh, whatsoever, then that there would be this holistic freak out and then more civil liberties would get rolled back rather than saying, here is one problem actor. Let's not make this policy that's going to, you know, yes, it was scary, but it could have been limited to just that instance. You know, I think that there were people who, who were strategically in the know who said, okay, we're going to create a situation and so that Americans have less and less freedoms and we're going to incrementalize a rollback now everybody in the known world that flies through one of our airports has their genitals x-rayed. Is that freedom? No, it's not. And the fact that you can't, you know, pack in your luggage what you want to pack in your luggage and the fact that you can't, you know, transport what you want to transport. I mean, somebody who uses glycerin hand soap does, should not be you know, have an orthoscope prodded up their rectal orifice to see if they're carrying a bomb. It's just not the way it should work. It's it's really it's really ins quite insane. Um, yep. Gregor, I'm going to elevate you to the speaker column so we can keep the conversation going. Uh, but I'm going to also put on uh, William, who's also a, a great host here on on call in. I'm going to go ahead and take William's call. Go ahead, William. Hello, everybody. Can you hear me okay? Now, William, I happen to know that, that you are of a disabled status. You know, yeah. have you been, you know, do you have a story or, or some kind of anecdote that, to exchange with, like, your own personal interactions with the, the Transportation and Safety Administration? It would be good to know. Actually, I haven't tried to travel since I became disabled, so. But I can tell you, when I was playing football and. I eventually started coaching in Europe, American football. I went over to France, and with a group of guys, we walked all around Paris and stuff, took a train into Paris from from Portsmouth, England. We went across the pond, you know. Anyway, so on the way back, we had to, we couldn't get a room. Uh, we had to sleep outdoors. By the time the next morning came, I, you know, I have dark skin when I'm outside a lot, and I have Italian features, dark skin, and so... They checked me three times. <laughs> I mean, all I had was an overnight bag going through customs, you know what I mean, trying to get back. And I had a can of tuna 
that uh, wasn't open. And I, I, someone would check me. I walked three more feet, stopped me again. Somebody else would check me, walk a couple more feet. So I'm like, hey, guys, you really want the can of tuna? You can have it. <laughs> like, what's in this? It says, it says tuna. You want to open it? You know, but I, I just tried to roll with it. But um, I like to joke if if Jesus Christ and his disciples were to come over today, try and come over today to TSA, they'd probably be put in, in behind bars somewhere. In a special box, right, you know, <laughs> for extra scrutiny. Unbelievable. <laughs> but let me add, um, I just put some text in the live chat. There were no Iraqi hijackers, number one. Ah, see? Did you know that? Check it out. There were fifteen Saudis. Saudis. They were all Saudi. And well, there was there was United Arab Emirates. I think there was two United Emirates. Best my recollection, one Egyptian and one from Lebanon. So we had then, of course, there were no weapons of mass destruction. And even if there were a terrorist cell in Saudi Arabia, the Wahhabi terrorists, so it seems. Why didn't they just target that special forces or get the Iraqi military and uh, their, their forces to do something? It seems so bizarre that we would do shock and awe in Iraq. Um, and certainly inappropriate, everything that's followed. I, I, I totally concur. There are a couple of things I want to note, I put in the live chat, that are going to blow people's socks off, right? There's a sworn statement from John Lear, an affidavit, who's a pilot of Lear Jets. Is this the news punch? Is that, is that yes. the news point? Okay, go ahead. Well, you got three. We've got John Lear. I don't remember which is which. I have to go back and look and open them again. And consider that. And then there's Major General Stubblebine's assessment, who is Army Surveillance. And then there's former War College Professor Alan Sobrowski. By the way, all these men debunk the, what we've heard from, from mainstream media. Let me just say that. I don't know how far you want to go okay. in the show. Okay. I, want to I, I needed to read you this. This is a paragraph from the Information Sharing with Transportation Security Partners. Internationally, in coordination with the Department of State, which I hope, because DHS as a whole is going to be on the pile. They are really going to get roasted under their rears and under their feet. Their feet are in the fire right now over the border. So I need to read this to you, and it pertains to everybody here. Uh, internationally in coordination with the Department of State, TSA representatives and international industry representatives stationed overseas liaise with foreign governments and airport stakeholders like the Sikh Coalition uh, and facilitate coordination with foreign and domestic air carriers overseas. Additionally, TSA is a leader in a number of regional and international organizations concerned with transportation security, such as the ICAO, the International Civil Aviation Organization, and the Quadrilateral Working Group. So TSA also partners with key industry trade organizations, trade associations, such as the International Air Transport Association, to help drive industry security policy and critical aviation issues. Now, what's really interesting is that this week, the World Economic Forum managed to take down their Twitter page. They're, they're just not live on Twitter right now. They're, they just kind of said, ah, we're, we're going to step away from, from Twitter. Because I think they were catching a lot of heat. 
So, uh, and I think it is because they managed to use the the this portal, this portal network, the HSIN, to to co-recruit companies for their SDGs and their ESGs and their their you know global surveillance programs. You know, your your rent at all, but have nothing, uh, and their bug eating program, but. <laughs> But what I want to say is that you seek, even as a member of the, the UK, you have so many uh, avenues here to to co co to advocate. You ha- you can advocate to the United States Transportation Security Administration, as can I, but uh, as a citizen. But you have a unique uh, port here because you have access to all these resources. And and you could speak to any of them as an advocate, and and ask for remission, uh, ask for for remittance, in terms of your grievances. Like I really think that you should impose limits on the amount of information that we share with Twitter, vis a vis, TSA and DHS. You can do that. Does that at all excite you? It excites me. That's for sure. Because <laughs> you could put a li- you could put a stop to it. Put a stop to what? Put um, sharing information. Yeah, like like undo, like intrusive, invasive grabs on your personal information, because I know that that FISA has this hyperextended um, uh, overreach on information sharing, and and even Biden has been trying to kind of not rock the boat, but kind of coordinate a continued sharing environment mm. with with Europe but their privacy laws are so strident that they can only get limited limited amounts of data um yeah. it, I think information sharing is you know crucial I think you shouldn't be held back by sharing information uh, on social media or or on any sort of you know private platforms and stuff but I think the whole World Economic Forum stuff with the Twitter, it would, that was kind of like um, like there was no announcement. I mean, that's not their official position about not sharing their information on Twitter anymore. I mean, I think I think that was basically being picked up on from their 2023 Davos um, sort of you know what's going to be coming up in January. They've not listed Twitter as a you know, a social network sharing partner on that list of, you know, uh, where you can get their information. Well, I mean, but but what I was trying to explain to you is that they don't have to be overt about their enrollment in this grant program. You know, you can can enroll in an information sharing grant program and send intelligence directly to DHS through a damn portal. And you'll never have to alert the public. No, no, you, can, you you do it privately, right? Well, you do. I mean, it seems secret, but you know, yeah. this is our tax dollars going to to pay people for their their surveillance. Our infrastructure is being used for surveillance upon us. Mm. It may well be. 
<laughs> it may well be. You know, I mean, like a lot of people are not really clued up on this. Like, you know, they're you know they're focusing on, on other things. You know, there's distractions. I know. <laughs> this is part of my job. This is part of why you you got me writing at at Truth Talk. Yeah, you dangle a carrot in front of people and they're like, you know, they, they're away with the fairies for like two months until they come back and then they read something like Truth Talk or, you know, you know what I mean? Like, you know, until right. you know, you've got to wake them up with, but it has to be the right time, the right place and the right message as well. So, I mean, that's where that's difficult as well. I mean, like, well, the kind of things that we're doing, like in terms of like, you know, um, well, I mean, we're not out there to wake people up we're out there just to put our own content out there you know content creators and um you know research in you know investigative research and even just putting simple stuff together like you know just maybe a, you know maybe an article of the latest uh, news stories and, and linking them all up into one you know a coherent um story narrative yeah. yeah narrative yeah i mean that's what we, that's all we're trying to do i mean we're not you know, we can't shift or bend people's perceptions. Um, I think the, the, you know, the globalist media and the, you know, the NGOs are, I don't know how they're doing it, but, you know, they're, they're doing it better than we are at the moment. Oh, mass formation. <laughs> this is the info, this is the info war. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And um, they're using world-class CIA tactics. You know, for they're taking them straight to propaganda school. Gregor, I mean, you had mentioned mass formation. Did you want to chime in on that? Well, it's just, you know, so much. Of, I, I, in the middle of, near the end of the book, called. Hey, Gregor, you sound okay. like you're underwater. Can you, can you adjust your mic? I hope so. Oh, underwater. there you go. You're, you're, yeah, it sounded like you were underwater. I might have been, might have had my mic off center or something. I might have been off kilter. That's a possibility. Um, yeah, I'm in the middle of reading a psychology of totalitarianism, and oh, uh, that's good. And you know, it's been a fascinating look at at the whys behind our current cultural problem. You know, where more people have the, um, you know, have to be the whole woke culture thing. Um, and you know why how they get there and why they why they participate and it's and it's all it's just all to me it's very frightening because you know you know the folks are guided in this direction and they feel good about it because they feel like they're doing something it's very egotistical of them to think they can change the world and do all these things and instead and hence that's part of my goal is with the liberty mindset is to just get people thinking that liberty personal liberty is the most important thing and you know and getting the government off our backs sure may be important but if you exercise your liberty locally everything else tends to fall into place now with the whole tsa thing we have a problem here and it needs to be fixed um and i but the question is whether or not we can get the uniparty um you know to fix it they're not promising to fix it they're not and we're, nobody's demanding they fix it we've all sort of grown accustomed to having our packages ravaged and our rectal orifices inspected. Well, maybe it's time to to awaken that again. We have we have a chance here. Um, we have yeah. we have an opportunity. There's a grand opportunity now that there's 
you know, a lot of civil libertarian speech coming out of the, uh, and there, there's going to be a, a grand inspection of DHS's orifices because of this, you know, lapse at the border. Let me tell you, they're over-inspecting Americans and letting everyone from hither and yon to come all over into the the, the deep ends of the American uh, continental U.S. Okay? They get here. In fact, there was an Afghani um, national who fought with our soldiers in, um, in Afghanistan. He paid a cartel to get over the border, you know, waited over the, the Rio Grande, typical wetback style. They, you know, came over. He turned himself in, and then they sent him straight to uh, DHS uh, detention center. And it's because the State Department has all these little rays and 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 ticks for different nation states. Okay, so the Department of State is never before Congress the way DHS is. This is not exclusively a DHS issue. It is a Department of State issue. Okay, and the Department of State has has a role that in depressing American liberties throughout the pandemic and through this this execution of non-service at the border. Trust me on this one. Zeke. Yeah, yeah I'm just on the TSA.gov website right now. And mm-hmm. I believe, you know, after 9-11, um, you know, um, security was beefed up at all airports, international, domestic. Um, they were looking out for ammunition, guns, uh, bombs, drugs. So this is like n- normal border patrol, but it's just beefed up. And, you know, like, I mean, I, I would love to, to come over to America, but, you know, I've not had my vaccines, so <laughs> I'm not too sure how they... Well, you wouldn't have to come to America. You could go to these uh, these other, uh, the ICAO, the Quadrilateral Working Group, uh, and and these are the international industry representatives. Plus, your local Sikh would have an interest or array in, into the technical security, um, and and you could you could make reasonable re- requests for information. Wow about the policies you could you know assert things about you know regional liberty you Mm -hmm. could um you could make qualified recommendations like you know if you think that the tsa genital scanner is a bit much you know maybe make an exchange for something you know less invasive uh because it's been a few years maybe maybe there should be an update you know yeah, I think they've got those in airports in the UK as well. You've got, you know, obviously X-rays, X-ray scanners and stuff. They've been there for for years. Yes, but but targeting your your person in such an intimate way. Yeah, well, I, I think I think yeah, you're right. They're moving away from physical uh, pat downs, uh, physical, you know, people, TSA uh, agents. They're, they're moving away from. Um, you know their employee count, um, their strategy towards. I mean, if you even go on the website, they, yeah, it's, it's real ID, right? So the ID requirements are checkpoints now. So it's all automated. Um, so they're going towards more biometrics, 
face scanners, palm scanners, you know, uh, digital identity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, so they, they can do all these pre-checks beforehand, actually, you know, and to make sure it's all sort of, you know, go. I mean, this is all the, this is all part of the, uh, you know, sort of the digital angle. Um, but yeah, they're way ahead, aren't they? I mean, like, you know, with touchless, touchless, uh, passportless, borderless now, um, you know, they can they can just scan your face and and have your records, you know. And, and See, that's that's not okay. That's not okay. And they've got your they've got your genital scans from thirteen years ago. So. <laughs> I want to cry, <laughs> and I just won't give it to them. I just won't. So I think oh. it's these are excessive demands on on your intimate person, and there's got to be a limit. Gregor, please say something reasonable. Uh, how do you be reasonable about this? Um, you know, I'm, I'm really... This, all this security, and every month you read about the handgun that got through three GSA checks and finally got picked up on the fourth check. Um, you know, we, it's or, not helping. No, it's just, it's, it, this kind of security is not capable of working. Um, you know, as much as people hate the word profiling, mm. Israel's been doing screenings without all this for years, and they haven't had any problems since the 70s. So, you know, I, they kind of the Israeli model was discussed back in 2001, and everybody poo-pooed it because they had to have all the technical stuff, and then they had to fire all the TSA agents and end up rehiring them, you know, for the same, you know, because of incompetence, and then they hired the same people back and just changed the uniform. As much as I, I think that the Israelis are, are absolute security crazies, uh, I, I think that 2001 Israeli security model seems reasonable compared to the TSA X-ray. Well, yeah, they question people, they look at behavior, and then let you move on and only pull you over if you, you know, flag one of their behavioral things and you know that's a country that's full of people of all kinds of various nationalities and colors and they seem to be relatively successful at it i've known people that traveled to israel and said it was a marvelous experience so you know and but i but we're trying to do is trying you to need put something in... you know if we take away one thing if we take away their electronic gestapo we've got to give them something else as a pacifier and i think Why? that well, I mean, as a step down, because they're going to be, it's going to, they just need to shrink the amenity there. I mean, if you take, and that's what the, the Uniparty is going to want. They're going to want something for in exchange for that. Because okay, there's well, gonna and, be and, I'm, and I'm game somebody questioning me at length, you know, asking me questions and deciding on my behavior because I've got nothing to hide. Um but you know, if I happen to use hand lotion, I don't. I should not be pulled over. You know, that's that that whole glycerin thing is just ridiculous because well, they opened is, his presence. Well, and it's ubiquitous. It's on all kinds of products. You know, it's not. It's not. It's not limited. If it was something that's specifically limited to bomb making, I can understand it. But glycerin is not. Glycerin is easy to detect, hence they use it. But you know, my wife next time she flies could get pulled over. She uses hand lotions and things. I don't know if they have glycerin in them, but I mean, it's just, you know, Jeff Dunham has a whole thing on being, having his, you know, puppets scanned because they thought, because of glycerin, and it's not like he's been a known terrorist forever. No, and they know who he is. They do it just to be vindictive at some point. 
the attitude of the people that were processing my friend uh, was was horrible. They 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 were mean spirited. They were mad at him because he decided not to do the digital scan and make their job easier. And I'm thinking, if you don't want to work today, don't work at the TSA. I mean. They did. They made sure to make him wait longer. He almost. He was, you know, within the edge of missing a flight. And and they they opened all his stuff and with without apology. You know, they they didn't say, "I'm sorry, sir. We have to do this." You know, no. They were just like, you know what? Screw you. You're making our job hard. So that's not what what th- that's not security either. Well, no, you your your mic is way down again. They're exercising. Yeah, it's it's petty tyranny at this point. And if you put up with it, this is going to be our life for the next forty years. So now is the time. You know, if you're if if this is, seems unreasonable, which it is, it is. I'm just not going to allow you to say it's not. Um, it is unreasonable. Right. So now is the time for you to speak up. We've got an opportunity. Seek, you have a tremendous opportunity, um, you know, to, to make your voice heard and, and introduce things that are sane. It's a definitely kind of a, a reduced down from all the liberties that we have lost and, and get something in the exchange that, that seems more appropriate to, to airport security, if that's what we're going to discuss. Gentlemen, Hello. Can I yes. make a, can I yes, jump in Yes, yes, absolutely, William. Hi, Gregor. First of all, I haven't talked in a long time. How are you? I think we've talked before. Um, sounds More familiar. like yelled, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've never had an argument with Gregor. Not that I know of. Anyway, and um, okay. The, I know I want to go back to 9-11 for a minute. General Wesley Clark's comment, there's a video a link there, uh, embedded video in the article. I'm going to thumbnail version Okay, brethren, what? we got to wrap this up in the next uh, two minutes because I I do have to be somewhere. Okay. Well, m- does anybody recall what he said about the uh, taking seven countries in five years? But that when you talk to the people, the Pentagon is like, have we got something else on Iraq? Because what do we have? Why are we doing this? They had nothing. No weapons of mass destruction. No Iraqi hijackers. There was, no, and you could check out Wesley Clark questioning that. And that's what was, where do we get from that? The Patriot Act and the Project for a New American Century. And all this, what we're seeing now. And um, this uh, is highly questionable. Again, you can check out the other links. They would take more than a minute for me to describe them, so I'll leave it at that. Oh, but that's those nine statements. So, so, guys, thank you. Thank you all um, for joining. Um, I'm going to go ahead and wrap up the program. Seek, I'm so glad you dropped in. You know, you're... you're uh, your exposition of the Sikh community was extremely beneficial. You know, I hope you'll come back and, and join us again. Uh, Vladi, I'm sorry we didn't get a chance to talk today, but for, to everyone who did join, I want, you, I want to wish you a wonderful, happy New Year's Eve, and um, and we'll see you next year. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you Sheila. You're welcome. Thanks for listening. Before you go, hit the subscribe button. Remember that callers are welcome. Subscribers can access unsanctioned citizen podcast archives at Substack, Automatic, iHeartRadio Podcasts, and Call In. Please stay in touch. We want to hear from you. Visit SheilaMDean.com.